We now return to our expositional series in 1 John. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 John chapter number 3. 1 John chapter number 3. It is good to be back in 1 John, but we're only going to be here for a week because I have something else in mind as as far as uh, next Lord's Day with Old Fashioned Sunday. But we're here today. We'll be there, we've been here all summer, and we're probably going to be in it uh, a good portion of the fall as well as we continue to work through these five chapters. And as your pastor, I have to confess, I've really enjoyed this. I have thoroughly enjoyed digging in to this little book and trying to extract the precious truths that are there that we might not pick up on as we casually read through it. Now this morning, we come to the end of chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3, and we have six verses that we're going to consider, verses 19 through 24. And I want to tell you, there is a lot for us here. This passage is deep, it is vast, it is high, it is wide with spiritual truth and spiritual nutrition. We aren't sitting down to a table and cutting into a little petite filet mignon. No, we've got a thick porterhouse before us. In fact, it's not even a thick porterhouse. It's that big slab of meat that's hanging in the, the freezer of a steakhouse. It's the one that you, that you eat, and if you eat it all, the, rest, the whole family eats for free. You know what I'm talking about? That's what we have before us. So let's read 1 John chapter 3, and I want to read to your hearing verses 19 through 24. And the title of the message is Condemnation or Confidence. 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 19. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandment dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he had given us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but your words endure forever. So God, we pray now in the time that we have remaining together that you would help us, Lord, to understand these words. We can't do them with our own human eyes. God, we need help. And so we pray that through the Holy Spirit of the living God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that impressed upon your chosen men of old to pen your words, that He would help us, that He would illuminate our eyes so that we would understand your precious Holy Word. All these things we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. History records for us that one of the greatest preachers to ever come out of America is a man known by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He lived in the 1700s from 1703 to 1758. His most famous sermon that he ever preached is one entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
That sermon helped ignite the fires of the first great awakening. And God used men like Jonathan Edwards and like George Whitfield to draw countless numbers of sinners to genuine repentance and saving faith in the gospel. And the sermons that he preached and the things that he wrote, he wrote powerfully to call people to do five things. First, obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, turn from sin. Third, embrace the authority of Scripture. And fourth, pursue personal holiness. Excuse me, four things. And is it all of which leads a person to find their fulfillment in glorifying the Lord. That's how we find our fulfillment in this life is doing those things that please God. And we're going to talk about that today because the things out there in the world that the world hurls at us that tells us that we need that we need to do, that we need to pursue will only leave us empty and will only leave us wanting more and more and more. You know the people that I'm talking about and you may have even been there at one time yourself. You were searching to try to find something to fill that void in your heart. You may, have, you may have pursued it with drugs. You may have pursued it with alcohol. You may have pursued it with relationship after relationship after relationship. You may have tried to uh, fill it with money, with stuff, possessions. But what you were trying to fill is the Jesus hole in your heart. And nothing will do that except Christ himself. And so that's what Edwards was preaching. That's the things that he was preaching and the things that he was writing at the time. And so many at the time would hear that and, 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 and it, would, it, it was overwhelming to them. And many at the time began to question their assurance. They were thinking, man, am I doing all that I should do? Am, am, am I doing all that I can do? Am I truly saved? And then if you back up, people in the first century had that same issue. That's why, one of the reasons why John penned this letter. People in Asia Minor were dealing with those Gnostics. The Gnostics were running rampant with their false teachings, and one of those false teachings was that they received direct revelation from God. So when you hear people constantly saying, well, God told me this, God showed me that, you begin to think, man, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? How come God's not directly talking to me? How come I'm not audibly hearing His voice? And doubt begins to creep in, and assurance is questioned. Same thing happens today. Same thing happens today. There are those that for various reasons lack that precious assurance of salvation. And it, I have told you before, it is the burden of this pastor's heart. As it was the Apostle John, as it is for the Lord himself, for the people of God to walk in the blessing that they know, that they know, that they know, that they know that they have eternal life. John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, the whole reason why he wrote this epistle, he sums it up there. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may ponder, that you may question, that you may wonder, that you may be woken, waking up in the middle of the night with ulcers because you're filled with so much doubt and questions. No. He says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you have eternal life. That you have been truly saved 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage. Let's look at this passage. I want to give you five things, five C words this morning. I want us to look at the conscience. I want us to look at the condemnation, the confidence, the compliance, and the communion. Five C's. Point number one, look at verse 19 and 20, and we see our conscience before God. Look what it says again. It says, and hereby we know, and hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. And then look at the first part of verse 20. For if our heart condemn us. So first let's deal with that phrase, and hereby we know. Or some of you may have a more modern translation that says, by this we know. When we come to a phrase like this, it's just like coming to a wherefore or a therefore. If you think back to when Brother Haywood preached. When you come to a phrase like this, it means that you have to look to the previous thought in order to understand what the writer's saying. So when you think back to the previous thought, to the section that came just before that, hereby or by this we know, it says that so because we genuinely love everyone, because we genuinely have a particular love for the brethren, not just lip service, but we truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ in thought, in word, and in action. And because we are hated by the world due to our allegiance to Jesus Christ, because of those things, we know we are of the truth, and this gives us assurance. That's kind of hard to think about, that someone hating you could give you assurance, but as sure as I'm standing here this day, we are hated by the world. Turn your news on. It won't take you five, ten minutes to figure that out. You behold to the truths of the word of God and the world will despise you. And people that you have thought were friends or relatives will turn on you just like that. We talked about that. And you, and you don't want anything but just the best for them. But you're hated because of your allegiance to Christ. And John says if we have this evidence in our lives of these holy affections, then we can be assured that we have been redeemed by Christ. Sadly, some don't. Sadly, some still lack that assurance. Now think about that word heart. Look what it says. It says, and hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Here in this section, the heart means conscience. Conscience is defined as the inner sense of what is right or wrong in one's conduct or motives, impelling one toward right action. That's how Webster defines it. That's how Webster defines conscience. Listen to this in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, what does that mean? It means that the Ten Commandments, the law of God, was not given to the Gentiles. It was given to the Jewish people. So on paper, people that are outside of Christ should not know what the law is. All right? For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. They do these things naturally. Means they instinctively. 
instinctively don't lie. They don't steal. Instinctively, they, they, they don't murder. They instinctively do not do these things because they know that they're wrong. Why? How? We're told in that they demonstrate, verse 15 of Romans 2, in that they demonstrate that the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Every human being is born with God's law stamped on their heart, stamped upon their conscience. Every person, man, woman, is born in the image of God. And therefore, instinctively, we know that it's wrong to lie because God is not a liar. We know that it's wrong to steal because God is not a thief. We know that it's wrong to murder because God is not a murderer. And we know that it's wrong to do things that are solely relegated to marriage outside of marriage because God is not an adulterer. And all of that could be applied to every one of the Ten Commandments because God has written them on the hearts of every human being. Therefore, every person has a very basic sense of morality. Every person has a very basic understanding of right and wrong. And when we violate God's law, also known as commit sin, our conscience convicts us. The conscience is God's guilt-producing warning device given to every person to confront sin. Now, when a believer, when a Christian obeys the Word of God, the conscience informs them that they did the right thing. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I am telling, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He's like, I'm not lying. If I were lying, my conscience would convict me. The Holy Spirit would incite my conscience to convict me of the lie. But he's saying, I'm not lying and my conscience is not convicting me of it. And when that happens, when we obey the Lord, we receive we receive joy and godly confidence. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. It's not somebody else keeping record that, it, that, that matters. It, it's our conscience. It is our conscience that keeps us on the straight and narrow in how we have acted toward the world and toward you. But on the other hand, if we sin, our conscience indicts us. Our conscience gets on our case on account of our wrong thoughts and actions. Let me read to you. Let me read to you from John chapter 8. John chapter 8, when the, the, the adulterous woman was, was caught and brought to Jesus. John chapter 8, I'm again reading in verse 1. It says, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master. And they didn't really believe that he was a master or a teacher. They're, they were just almost, they were really mocking him. It says, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very Act. Side note, how'd they know? How'd they know? 
I mean, unless it was going on out in, in, in the open, out in, 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 right in public, how did they know unless they were spying on the people? But nonetheless, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? They said in tempting him that they might have to accuse him. They were trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Jesus didn't even pay them any mind. He wrote, he, he, he kneels down and he starts writing in the ground. He starts writing in the ground. What is it that he was writing? Nobody knows, but I've got a feeling he writes what he's getting ready to say next. I have a, I, I believe with all of my heart, he writes out in the dirt what he's getting ready to tell them. They bring this woman to him and says, the law says that she is to be stoned. Hey, teacher, what say you? Verse seven. So when they continued asking, he lifted himself up and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone, first cast a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground again. So he gets up. He gets up. He doesn't even look at him. And it's like he just reads what he just wrote. And he still, he doesn't, he never takes his eye off the ground. He doesn't even look at him. And he goes back down, right on the ground again. And verse 9 says, when they, these men that brought this woman and brought these accusations to the woman, when they heard it, being convicted by what? Their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And we know what happened with the rest of it. Jesus said, where are your accusers? All of them are gone. Neither do I accuse you go and sin no more. Their conscience, those men's conscience was attacked. It was attacked with truth. Now the conscience by itself does not determine right or wrong. The conscience by itself does not determine right or wrong. The conscience must be informed. It operates based on what it's fed. If the conscience is based on any source other than Holy Scripture, the conscience will act according to those false ideas. For example, Islamic suicide bombers think they are doing God's work. If the conscience is informed by the culture or some other false view of morality, that conscience is going to be distorted. It's going to be messed up. John MacArthur once said, he said, what pain is to your physical body conscience is to your spiritual soul it's a warning mechanism and if you didn't have that warning mechanism you'd be deadly to your own self because you'd plunge deeper and deeper and deeper into sin without any appropriate warning of the danger now everybody has a conscience but conscience has to be informed by the right standard so you have to teach people the law of god so that that conscience can react Conscience is not the law of God. Conscience is not a system of morality. Conscience is a device that reacts based upon whatever your highest level of morality is. If you have a low level of morality, you have a very minimally functioning conscience. So what does Satan want to do? He attacks morality and he attacks the conscience. He attacks morality and he attacks the conscience. In order to have men on a greasy slide straight to hell, he wants to neutralize that conscience. He wants to silence it and take it out of the equation. And this is how he, this is how he does it. You can misinform the conscience. I'm going to give you three things about the conscience. You can misinform the conscience. 
You can change this. You, you can try to change the standard of morality, turn it into a lie. And that is what you feed to the conscience. And we see that in the culture. Right. We see this in this self gratification seeking morality in the world. Right. Live however you want to live. If it makes you happy, just do it. Misinforming the conscience. Feeding it the wrong stuff. The second thing you can do to, to try to silence the conscience is say that you shouldn't feel guilty. Right? We live in a society that talks a lot about guilt, but it wants to transfer the guilt from me to you. Right? You need to feel guilty for what you've done to me, even if you haven't done anything to me, so I don't have to feel bad for nothing because I don't need to feel bad because I don't deserve to feel bad. I need to be happy. I need, it needs to be bubbly sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns all the time. That's the society we live in, and we tell each other that we shouldn't feel guilty. You need not feel guilty. Everybody runs around telling themselves just how great they are. And this is where you see people clapping their hands, telling people, way to go. Yes, live your life your way. That just soothes the conscience, leads them straight to hell. Comfortable, but straight to hell. And that goes on for so long, when the conscience does kick in, they won't hear it. And then there's a third way. And this is what the New Testament speaks about a lot. And that's the seared conscience. The third way you neutralize the conscience is to sear it. The New Testament talks a lot about having a seared conscience. It's the desensitized conscience. That's like something's been burned so many times that all the nerves are dead and it feels nothing. And the way that you do this is by continually violating your conscience. You violate it, 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 and you violate it with sin until you've covered it up with so much resistance and so much scar tissue that when your conscience cries out against you, you are so good at not listening, and that conscience now has little to no effect. That's what the enemy wants to do. That's what the enemy wants to do. That is what Satan is alive and well on planet Earth trying to do. He develops a moral system that misinforms the conscience. He develops a psychological system that tells you not to listen to the conscience, but to override it with the love for yourself and how proud you should be of yourself and your pursuit of self-esteem. And he wants you to be so frequently, he wants you to so frequently ignore your conscience that it literally becomes covered over with scar tissue and ineffective. But our conscience is a critical device. Think about this. When you became a Christian, you had a very active conscience, didn't you? It was very active. Because you came, became a, uh, you became a Christian with con by conviction, Right? I mean, when you became a Christian, it was an issue of repentance. So at some point, your conscience was awakened. Your conscience was made alive. You saw the law of God. The Apostle Paul says, I saw the law, the law of God and I died. It slew me. That's what he was meaning. His conscience literally dealt him a death blow. So at some point, moving along in our sinful lives, God, by his mercy and by his grace, awakened us to the true law, awakened us to his true standard. You and I realized that we fell short. 
Our conscience was slaughtering us. We felt indicted. We felt guilty. We felt anxious. We felt burdened. We knew we deserved the devil's hell. We knew we deserved to go there. We got to the point to where we cried out and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save my wretched soul. We pounded our chest and we, we were at a level of desperation where we were willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And your conscience was activated at that time. And it brought you to true, genuine repentance. And the New Testament talks about the fact that when someone becomes a believer, not just before salvation, but from then on, your conscience should function in a very unique way. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what happened when you were saved was all of that accusation and all of that, all of that garbage that your conscience was just throwing at you and throwing at you and throwing at you and throwing at you and that you were in, in, indicting you for under the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's part of that's what the Spirit does. The Lord Jesus said the Spirit will come to do what? Convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness, right? The Spirit was stirring up your conscience, and He's stirring it up, stirring it up, stirring it up, and it was accusing you and overwhelming you, and you were feeling the weight of sin, and then you came to Christ, you bowed the knee, and His blood washed your conscience clean. And one of the great realities that happens when a person is saved is they come out on the other side of that meat grinder with the burden lifted. Am I right? You think back to that time. You think back to that night. You think back to that afternoon. You think back to the time to when you were arrested by the holy law of God and you knew where you stood in, in before God Almighty. You knew what you deserved. But then you remember how sweet the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace was and how it felt like the burden was just lifted off of you and you felt like you could just float right on up to heaven. That's the cleared conscience that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ washes, washes down to the bone, down to the bone. We would need to be washed and he washes our conscience. The testimony of the New Testament says that the born-again believer been washed thoroughly by the blood, by the blood of Jesus. Sin's been washed away. Soul has been washed clean. Conscience has been washed clean. So then that begs the question, why do some still doubt? Look at verse 20. And we think about the condemnation. We've looked at our, our conscience before God. Now let's think about the condemnation we experience. Verse 20. Look at it, it says, For if our heart can... If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Think about this. We've seen no twice. Verse 19, hereby we know. And verse 20, God knows. We know and God knows. We know and God knows. Verse 19 says, hereby we know that we are of the truth. If the previous fruit's visible in our lives, if that fruit is visible, we can, we can, we can have uh, uh, confidence, we can have assurance, we, we, our conscience can be uh, assured before God. But what about when that fruit is invisible all the time? What about when we just aren't as loving to our brothers or our sisters like we ought to be? 
And what if sometimes the fiery darts of the devil that fly our way, they come heavy, they come hot, they come fast, and they're laced with doubt? Well, the answer is in verse 20. For if our heart, if our conscience condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Wes and I both pick on the person a lot that likes to say, well, God knows my heart. Because most of the time they're using it really as an excuse to sin. Hello? Everybody okay? I might preach a little bit. I might preach on that a minute. Everybody okay with that? More often than not, when people use that, say, well, God knows my heart, they're using it as an excuse to sin. So it is very dangerous to say, God knows my heart because He does. And what does He say? Told in Jeremiah, it's deceitful. It's desperately wicked above all else. Who can know it? God. So God knowing our hearts can be a very dangerous thing. But when we come to this, when we come to this, tenderness, when we come to this self-condemnation, when we come to these accusations that we keep heaping upon ourselves, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. God knows who are truly His children. And a Christian cannot lose their salvation. They can lose that assurance, but they cannot lose their salvation. Why do Christians lack assurance? Why do they doubt their salvation? Let me give you some reasons why. One, some lack it because they sit under strong preaching. Some lack because they sit under strong preaching. That's not a bad thing. We're called to test ourselves, to examine ourselves and say, are we of the faith, right? We're we're to do that self-examination. Take that inventory. Okay, what do I need to get right with God? What is still causing me to trip up? Do I have anything in my life that I have not cleaned out of my spiritual closet? That type of conviction is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. And sadly... A vast majority of people that call themselves Christian do not sit under sound biblical preaching. It doesn't draw crowds. It is not popular. It does not bring in the big crowds. It does not bring in the numbers. Because people want to heap up ear ticklers. People want to be told, hey, you're great. They want to hear, hey, you're, you're, you're a winner. They want to do this corporate stuff that I've never understood. Where the, the, the people are just so corporate and they're so sold out for the company, they get in there and they got these big smiles on their faces, like, "Hey, we're going to win today. We're going to win what? I'm here for the paycheck, no more, no less." But that's the what is infiltrated into the churches. Nobody wants to be made to feel bad. Nobody wants to be convicted. But the people that sit under sound preaching, they do have that blessing of of conviction. The second reason why some people might lack assurance, and this is a big one, they've never been able to accept forgiveness. Sure, they believe what the Bible says. They believe that there's a place called hell, and that's where all people who die in their sin go. Yes, I believe that. They believe that Jesus Christ came and lived sinlessly, died vicariously to save people from their sins. They'll say, yes, I believe that. And the person that he forgives is justified, meaning they're declared righteous in the sight of God. 
They know that when God forgives someone that he casts sin as far as east is from west to be remembered no more. But then they think to themselves, but not me. Yes, he can forgive anybody and everybody, but not me because you don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know what I've done. This is because the conscience speaks against forgiveness. Conscience and assurance are at odds at one another. And you see that in the text. Conscience and assurance are at odds with one another. And God designed it to be that way. It's the conscience job to hold us up against God's bar and show us how we need him. How we need to keep being conformed into the image of Christ. This is what God designed the conscience to do. And also the the conscience knows nothing of mercy. God gives mercy. The conscience doesn't. And people will say, you know, I, 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 I feelings, your feelings do not trump truth. God, I know God can forgive all of these other people, but he can't forgive me. You don't have the authority to tell God Almighty who he can't, can and can't forgive. None of us have that authority. And there's a third reason why people doubt their assurance. Humanly speaking, they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the gospel and they don't understand the plan of salvation. Humanly, it don't make sense. Humanly, it does not make sense. If I want my paycheck, I have to go to work. I have to go to work and I have to earn it. I have to go to work, I have to do my I have to show up and I have to do my job well. If I stop showing up or if I stop doing my job well, a check ain't gonna keep coming. We have to earn our living. We don't earn our salvation. Now we earn, a person does earn their eternal punishment for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You weave together, you, you, each individual outside of Christ does indeed store up and earn the wrath that they receive. But when it comes to salvation, God gives mercy. Mercy. Mercy is what withholding something from someone, withholding something from someone, even if, and, and when they have the power, the authority, the justification to do so. God in his mercy withheld the wrath that you and I deserve. That don't make sense. That don't make sense. I mean, you think about this when some, if somebody has ever wronged you, if somebody, especially if somebody's ever stolen something from you, if somebody's ever stolen something from you, you know, you were thinking, you know, I don't want mercy to come down. I want the full extent of the law to come down because they stole from me because money's hard to come by and I, and, and I, I can't afford to go out and buy whatever it was that got stolen. God's not like that. God's not like that. He shows mercy. He takes what is deserving to us and he withholds it. But then he gives grace and takes that which was supposed to be for us and he put it upon Jesus on the cross. He withheld from us and he gave to Jesus. And it's hard to comprehend that. And people in our natural mind, we think that I, I want to, I got to work, I got to work, I got to work, I got to work, I got to work. 
And I know, I know that, that I'm not downplaying the responsibility of a man. That's not the, I'm not downplaying the responsibility of the person. And if you hear my voice and you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, repent and believe. Cry out to him today for the salvation of your soul. But Jesus paid it all. He took the first step. He took the second step. He took the 99th step. He took the 115th. Jesus paid it all. Born of that virgin, that means he did not have the sin nature like you and I did. He obeyed the law perfectly for 33 years that you and I couldn't do for 33 minutes. Went to the cross, willingly laid his life down, had the wrath of God poured out upon him, wrath that was meant for you and I. He, before he gave up the ghost, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, hey, my part's over. Now it's up to you. He said, it is finished. And the proof that it is finished was the third day he rose from the grave. The third day that he rose from the grave. And I will tell any Methodist, I will tell any Pentecostal, I'll tell any free will Baptist or any other supposed Arminian line of thinking that God Almighty is not an Indian giver. He does not go back. He does not take away what he has given to the people that he has saved. You think about Abraham. Abraham, we talked about Abraham a lot on Wednesday nights as we're going through the book of Genesis. Abraham is recorded in Hebrews 11. For those of you that don't know, another name for Hebrews chapter 11 is the Faith Hall of Fame. You read that chapter and enshrined in that chapter are all of the people in Scripture that had Hall of Fame faith. They had great faith that we are uh, to look up to and we should. Abraham had great faith when God called him to go to on a distant journey when he called him to leave he called him to leave his father his family his home he, his comfort of everything that he had ever known to get up and leave and go to a land that he had never seen before because God was going to make a nation out of him Abraham did not question Abraham did not say oh well can we wait till spring of the year he got up and he left he obeyed and then when you fast forward later, when it comes to the, the when, when Abraham is in his hundreds and he's got this first son, he was told that he was going to have son, uh, descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, but he only has this one son, Isaac, and God tells him, take him up on Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there. Abraham does not question God. He obeys and he goes. He didn't know how, when, or why, but he knew both of them were going to come back down off of that mountain. Abraham obeyed. But there are two times recorded in the Scripture where Abraham's faith fluttered. Twice he told a lie and said that his wife Sarah was really his sister because he wanted to, he thought he needed to help God out to protect him, to cover his behind instead of just trusting God that God would take care of any danger. We read that in a couple of chapters in the book of Genesis. Do you know where you read that in the New Testament? Nowhere. You don't read that anywhere in the New Testament. All you read about is Abraham's faith. Why? Because God does not remind us of our past sins when he's washed them away. God does not hold our sins continuously over our head once he has forgiven them. One more thing. I've got to read this to you. I've got to read this to you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now... 
no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Everybody should have said amen right there. Everybody should be bursting at the seams with joy to hear that now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe some of you aren't like me then, I guess. I was just as filthy of a rotten, dirty, wretched sinner as ever see on planet Earth. How I sinned against God in the way that I thought, in the way that I talked, in the way that I lived. Why God Almighty would ever see fit to save somebody like me, I'll never know. But He did. And now there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God to whom all blessings flow. That's good news. That's the best news that there is. And now if God does not condemn us, we don't need to condemn ourselves. We don't need to condemn ourselves. Walk in the Spirit. Be sensitive to the Spirit. Lean on the Spirit so that we don't sin against uh, Him, sin, uh, uh, commit sin against our Heavenly Father. But we don't need to keep condemning ourselves. When God's not condemning us any longer, God's not condemning us any longer. I want to read a little more. I want to read a little more. Listen to what it says. Listen to what it says, verse 15 of Romans 8. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage to fear. I've been saved to be afraid. You're not being been saved to be afraid of the wrath of God. But you have been, you have received the spirit of adoption. We've been adopted into the family of God. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you've been adopted into his family whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. And we'll keep reading. 28, we know that all things work together to them who love God for them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son that they might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. To them He called, He also justified. To those whom He justified, He also glorified. God does not renege on that deal. A person does not go from being justified to then stop being justified and condemned again. It is not scriptural. You find it nowhere in this Bible. We can have great confidence in that. So where do we go when our conscience is accusing us? You go back to that gratitude that you had at the beginning. God knows more about mine and your sin than we do. God has a higher standard than you and I do, and God has pronounced you justified. He justified you from your past, present, and future sins. He knows our heart better than we do, and because He does, point number, point number three, confidence. We have the confidence that we can enjoy. Look what it says, verse 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Doubt will go away when we walk in obedience to the Lord. When we walk in obedience to the Lord, that insecurity melts away and it gives away to the confidence that we have in God. You know, and we're told in the Bible... Not to tiptoe to God. We're not told to run away from Him. We're told to come to Him boldly. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12 says, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in a time of need. Verse after verse after verse that we're told, don't run from him, but run to him. To him in confident expectation that God hears and he answers prayers. And confidence in this, in this passage is talking about the, the privilege of coming before someone of importance, someone of power, and someone of authority with, the, with feeling the freedom to express whatever's on your mind. And that is what God has given to the believer. That is what God has given to the Christian. Listen to what John writes just over in chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. He says, Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That we may have boldness, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. How do we have that confidence? Stop looking at yourself and look to Him. Stop looking at yourself and look to Jesus. That's the answer for everything. How do I deal with the turmoils and the things that the world hurls at me? Don't look at your problems. Look at Christ. How do I deal with this doubt that just constantly just assaults me? Don't look to you because you can't save yourself. Look to Jesus. When someone asks you why you think you are going to heaven, what is your answer? Because it's not because you go to church. It's not because you prayed a prayer and it's not because you got baptized. If you find yourself in heaven or at the end of this life, it will be for one reason and one reason alone because Jesus died for our sins. The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sir, what must we do to be saved? Paul and Silas responded, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. So now look at verse 21. It says, Beloved, if our heart condemns us not. So if we focus on Christ, our heart condemns us not. And we have this confidence. We have this confidence toward God. And the way that we're walking, when we walk in obedience and faith, we have assurance. And I've said it many times, obeying God yields blessing. It may not be the biggest house. It may not be the big bank account. It may not be the big car. But obeying God yields blessing. And one of the blessings of obedience is it assures your soul that you belong to the King of Kings. Verse 22, look what it says. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Prayer increases our assurance. Ann talked about that a few moments ago. uh, Prayer increases our assurance, but we must pray in accordance with God's will. And John clarifies that over in uh, chapter 5, verse 14. It says, and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will... What we ask for must be in His will. So if you think about it, prayer is not for God, it's for us. Prayer is not for God, it's for us. It's an act of worship. It's an act of worship to God, but it's a blessing for our benefit. 
We pray for, he, for our will to be conformed to His. And the more that happens, the more that happens over time, the more confidence that we experience. And the more we're conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the more assurance we will have. Point number four, our compliance. We've seen the conscience, the condemnation, the confidence, and now the compliance. Look what it says. Verse, second part of verse 22 to verse 23. Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight, and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of the Lord, of the Son of God, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. John's continuing to focus on that assurance by highlighting that believers willingly submit to God's commands because they desire to bring Him pleasure. Do you have that desire within your heart? Do you desire to bring pleasure to your Heavenly Father? Do you desire for the here one day... Well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because it should be. It should be. Now, John is not saying, hey, obey God for, just for the sole purpose of getting what you want. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. His holy, eternal will and purpose does not supersede ours. It does not supersede our desires. Remember, His ways are not always ours. His ways are not ours. His thoughts are not Yes, there is blessing in the Lord, but we do not faithfully obey the Lord just because we want to get something in return. That's what children do to their parents. I clean my room without you telling me to. Why? So I can get something. So I can go somewhere. So I can have something. God does not operate that way. We obey the Lord because we have been delivered from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and one day He's going to take us away from the presence of sin. We obey the Lord because what He has done on our behalf. We obey the Lord because we have been forgiven. We obey the Lord because He loves us and obedience to Him is how we show Him that we love Him. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I've told you to do. In verse 23, so what are the commandments? What are the things that we must do to, that are pleasing in His sight? Believe on His name is the first thing. Believe at the beginning of your salvation, at the, believe at the beginning of the salvation of your soul, and keep on believing. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us that God gives every Christian the saving faith that they have to believe on Jesus for, their, for the salvation of their soul. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even the very faith that you and I had, you and I have is a divine gift from God. And it is a gift, it is a faith, that it is a reality that will never die. How do I know that I have that kind of faith? Somebody might ask. Look at the next commandment, love one another. Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you love the church? Do you love the ones that Christ died to save? I already know the answer to that in this place. Yes, we've heard it. We've heard it over and over. And we, 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 we've heard it over and over through, for the last several weeks of testimony of how this church has circled people. So these are the spiritual markers that let us know we belong to Christ. The greatest assurance and the, 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 the source of our greatest assurance and the greatest confidence booster is found in verse 24, our final C. We've seen the conscience, the condemnation, the confidence, the compliance, our obedience to the Lord, and now the communion, our communion with the Holy Spirit. Look what it says. And he that keepeth his commandment dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know 
that He abides in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. There's two communions that we see here. First is the communion between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You see that phrase, His commandments dwells in Him. He abides. He has given. The He that is spoken of there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit. There is communion in the Godhead. They are three, yet they are one. One eternal uh, Godhead, one eternal God revealed in three divine persons, each with different offices, yet having the same eternality, authority, and power. And then there's the other communion. In Genesis, God walked with Abraham. He walked with Abraham in the cool of the day. He walked with Adam physically. Yahweh God walked physically with Adam. Adam was able to talk and to commune with God and not just hear God's audible voice, but actually see God face to face. See if whether God talked when he used his hands when he talked. He was able to see the words come out of God's mouth. That's not the way God works in the new covenant. In the new covenant, God the Holy Spirit dwells in me. And if you've trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you as well. Now in the new covenant, the temple of God is not a place. It's not a place. The temple of God is not a place, but a people. The temple of God is a people made up of living stones. God does not walk with us physically, but He dwells in us and equips us to do the things that He's called us to do. He teaches us. He comforts us. God, the Holy Spirit, is alive and well in His temple. I saw on the news Friday, a news report, that Orthodox Jews in Israel have found red heifers. Have anybody, any of y'all seen this? They have found red heifers. According to rabbinical tradition, there have been nine Red heifers since Moses' time. Nine. Nine that meet the requirements, that meet the specifications. You look in Numbers 19 and it tells you what those nine, what those requirements are. There's been nine since Moses' time. They've got to be perfect. They've got to be spotless. They've got to have a pure bloodline, all this, that, and the other. They can't have a tag in their ear. They found five of them in Texas. And we, and, and you know, ranchers usually brand them or they put that tag in their ear. They didn't happen to have a tag in their ear. You want to know why? Because the guy that was supposed to tag them got sick and didn't come to work. And so they found five red heifers that meet the requirements of that pure bloodline and all of that stuff. The Orthodox Jews have purchased them, shipped them back to Israel. And the purpose of sacrificing the red heifer is it's, it's, it's like a, a, a pre-sacrifice sacrifice. They sacrifice the red heifer before they do anything else is a, a, a general cleansing of the people. A general cleansing of the people so that they can be cleansed in order to make the rest of the sacrifices. The ones that they got, and, and, and one of the requirements is the heifers have to be two years old and one day when they're sacrificed, they're five months old. Hair standing up on the back of your neck yet? Folks, you better get ready. You better have your spiritual bags packed. God Almighty's winding this thing up. But if he tarries and they get that thing built and they sacrifice them things and they start those uh, blasphemous uh, 
animal sacrifices again. They became blasphemous the day that Jesus died and, and, and was crucified. There was never, there's never now no more sacrifice ever to be needed. Jesus finished it. He did it all. So if they start them up and they do all that ritualistic stuff, they do all that ritualistic stuff and we aren't raptured out of here before then, you and I can fly over to Jerusalem, Israel. We can walk right into that court of the Gentiles and go through and we can walk into the temple. We can walk into the outer room and then we can walk up the steps and we can throw open that curtain and go right into the Holy of Holies. Why? Because God is not in that temple no more. The temple of God is a people, not a place. So when that guy's sitting there and he's throwing all that blood and stuff and he's standing back, you and I got one up on him. We can walk right in. We can walk right in because the Holy Spirit of God is a people. It's no longer a place. It's the Holy Spirit of God that makes saints spiritually dead. It's the Holy Spirit that makes spiritually dead saints' souls come alive, gives sight to our blind eyes, causes our sinful hearts to repent, draws us to faith in Jesus. It's the Spirit who placed us in the body of Christ, gifted us for ministry in the church, and it is through His illuminating instruction that Scripture comes alive to us. The Holy Spirit energizes our prayers and He leads and guides Christians and assures us that we are His children. There are spiritual markers that we've talked about that let us know if we belong to the Lord, but the greatest of them all is the third part of the Godhead is inside of each one of us that belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the, the power of it. We thank You for the conviction of it. To God, it is our prayer that we would walk in the humble assurance, the humble but joyful assurance that if we Know Jesus Christ as Savior. It is finished. It is done. We belong to you. Now we're just working to tell others about you. Thank you for that precious gift. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.